verses, we can sing to you, Lord, and sing in unity and um, just hopefully bless your name, Lord. Um, thank you for that opportunity we get each week to come here and do that with each other. Lord, as uh, Pastor Doug comes up here to, to just share from your word, Lord, open our eyes, open our hearts. Um, let us hear exactly what you want to hear. You have us here for a reason, Lord. Um, and just, just bless those who came, Lord. Help them hear exactly what that reason is. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, let me just um, piggyback a little bit on what Garrett was saying. Um, the one thing that I wanted to talk about is these Connect cards, which many of you are familiar with. If you've been here before, you hear about these every week. But here's the thing. Um, we've been talking about the uh, pictures for the directory. We do a pictorial directory. The reason we do a pictorial directory is because we need to put names with faces. We want to know each other. If we're going to be a church family, we ought to at least know who each other are. Amen? So on Sunday mornings, you're sitting in rows. You get to know the back of the head of the person who sits in front of you, right? And most of you sit in the exact same seats every week. So you see the same back of the head every week. So um, we need to actually know what the front of your head looks like. That's the idea. Um, and so that's why we're doing these pictures. And they go hand in hand with the information that goes on these Connect cards. Because um, we want to make sure that we have up-to-date information for everybody for the directory. So to be in the directory, we need you to have a picture taken here. And we need you to fill out one of these cards. Even if you filled one out before, go ahead and do another one. Um, and include all these uh, information so we know how to get in touch with you and all that kind of stuff. And the other thing is, write down your birth date. Not just your birthday, December 4th, but December 4th, like in Jim's case, 1906, right? <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, yeah, he, he saw the Cubs win. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> write down your actual birth date because um, we need to know, like, who fits in what age categories. We have new software for the church, and we're trying to figure out easier ways to communicate with everybody. And... If we have a young adult event coming up, we are not sending it to Jim. That's the idea, okay? So we need to know what your uh, birth date is. And uh, the other thing is, don't hesitate to use the back of the card to let us know how we can be praying for you this week. We're really committed to praying for one another around here. We want to make sure that we are praying for you if you have some specific need coming up. So those boxes in the back are there. They say connect cards. You just drop it in at any point and that will work just fine. So I wanted to make you aware of that. Now, I want you to get a completely different picture in your mind. It is a December morning, but that's okay because it's Hawaii. All right? And there is no place you'd rather be in December than Hawaii. And it is a typical, beautiful Oahu morning. The sun has been up for just a little while and people are sitting out on their verandas and uh, enjoying the smell of the ocean and watching the beautiful sunrise and all of that is going on. Uh, the military there is off to their ships and everybody is getting up and ready and the, and the sailors are finishing up their breakfast. Meanwhile, shop owners are heading out to open up their shops for the day. Tourists are just arriving on the beach. It's, it's going to be a typical, fantastic, beautiful Hawaiian day. The sky is blue. The sun is up. There's a few clouds over the mountains. And, and as you're just relaxing in your beach chair, 
you hear a sound, it's a distant sound, and you just begin to hear it. It's, it's almost the sound of an of a airplane propeller. And as you look off in the distance, you see an airplane, in fact, is coming your way. In fact, it's a whole formation of airplanes. What was one becomes two, what's two becomes ten, and eventually there's 353 Japanese planes flying at Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. And the attack is shocking, and the attack is relentless, and the attack goes on for hours. It's brilliantly planned. It's carried out with precision. And by the time the attack is over in the early afternoon, Pearl Harbor is a shell of its former self. Of the eight Navy battleships that have been badly damaged, four of them are already at the bottom of the ocean. Another eight U.S. military ships are sunk and badly damaged. There's 188 U.S. aircraft destroyed that day, and 2,403 people have lost their lives in the last three hours. Another 1,178 people are wounded, and for a time... The U.S. Navy in the Pacific is crippled. Why? Was it because the Japanese military was so much stronger than the U.S. military? Was it because the, the Japanese pilots were more dedicated to their orders than, than the U.S. Uh, Navy officers were committed to their orders? Was it because the pilots were better at dropping bombs than the Sailors were at shooting anti-aircraft guns into the air. Is it, is it because the people of Japan were more committed to the battle than the people of the United States? It wasn't for any of those reasons. It was for one reason, very simply, that the attack was such an overwhelming success from the Japanese perspective and such a terrible disaster from the U.S. perspective. One reason and one reason only, and that is the element of surprise. See, they were at war and we weren't. And, and, and so they had planned carefully. They had strategized and thought about it and chosen the day and watched the weather and moved their uh, aircraft carriers into the right region and sent their submarines under the cover of the ocean. They had great communication and a great plan, and they carried out their plan perfectly, as you would when you were at war. But the United States was not at war. We were just paying attention to the war. And we didn't know an attack was coming. And because we didn't know that an attack was coming, we weren't ready for it. See, when you know you're at war, you're ready. But when you're not aware that there's a coming battle, you are easily attacked. My, my job today is to be the bearer of some bad news. I need to let us all know something. We're at war. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, we are at war, and the stakes are high, and we can act like we're on vacation, and we can sit back and relax and enjoy the scenery, but the truth of the matter is, those planes are coming, and those bombs are going to get dropped, and those missiles are going to get fired, because we are at war whether we know it or not, and we are at war whether we like it or not. You may say, I don't want to be at war. I have no interest in being in a battle. Too late. You can't avoid the battle. We've been in Ephesians for months now. And in Ephesians, 
the first three chapters, he describes what it is to be a Christian, to be, to be bought with the blood of Christ, to be given his grace and the faith to believe, to exercise that faith, to be adopted into the family of God, to become one of his, a child of God and a joint heir with Jesus. And we saw that for several weeks in the first three chapters of Ephesians. And then you get to chapter four and chapter five, and it begins to get real um, down and dirty. And it starts to talk about the very specific ways that we're to live out our faith if we're really going to be followers of Jesus. And, and if you have become a follower of Jesus, and if you're making any effort to live out your faith the way that the Word of God calls us to, then you could be sure of this. You are in the middle of a battle whether you like it or not. And he describes for us in Ephesians chapter 6 something about that battle and what it is to get ready for that battle. And that's what we're going to be talking about for the next couple of weeks because you're right in the middle of an Ephesians 6 battle. People at Pearl Harbor didn't want a war either, but it came to them. And we should expect nothing less if we're going to be followers of Jesus. If Jesus found himself under the attack of the enemy all the time, why would we not expect to be under the attack of the enemy as well? If you think about Jesus' ministry, his, his ministry sort of officially launched on the day of his baptism. And if you remember the story, he goes down and he's baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. And as he comes up out of the water, literally there is a, a presence of the Holy Spirit which comes down out of heaven and rests upon him. And the voice of his father which says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And it's this amazing picture. And this is sort of God's stamp of approval for all of the people on Jesus as he launches his ministry. And now with the Holy Spirit upon him, the first thing that the Spirit does, the Scripture says, is the Spirit led him into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. That was true. And that battle raged for 40 days, and it didn't stop after 40 days. The battle continued. The battle continued. We saw the battle again in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus sweat great drops of blood under the incredible anxiety of what he was facing and the pressure that was upon him to go to the cross. And he fell flat on his face again and again and again. And he cried out to his father, please, please let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The battle continued as he was taken into custody and beaten and tortured and then marched through the streets carrying his own cross covered in his own blood, and still the people threw things at him, and still the people spat at him, and still the people mocked him, and the Roman soldiers continued to beat him as he carried his own cross, cross, the instrument of his own death, up the mountain where he would ultimately be nailed to that cross as the battle raged. And finally, he would say, it is finished, and he would breathe his last, and his head would hang, and they would take his dead, limp body off of that cross and put it into a cave, a tomb, and seal that tomb. It is the place of the dead, and even in the place of the dead, the battle raged as Jesus won victory for us over sin and death. You see, battle is normal for Christians. It's the norm. But interestingly, that is not the way we tend to present that. We don't tend to tell this story very much. In fact, I don't really want to tell this story today. If it wasn't for the fact that Paul stuck this at the end of Ephesians, I wouldn't talk about this today. I would talk about something like, let's pray for the UCLA Bruins to win a game, <laughs> something like that. But I got to cover this. 
and it's not a subject we want to talk about. This is not where we send the kids off to Kids Connection, and we get them over there, and what do we do? We say, now listen, boys and girls, I want to tell you today about the love of Jesus. Jesus loves you so much, and we're not talking about just anybody. This is Jesus. He's God. He's the creator of the universe, and he made you special, and he made the butterflies, and he made the puppies, and he made the ice cream cones, and he made all the good stuff, and he loves you so much, and he wants to be your very best friend. And if you will accept him today, he will be your friend and he will be your king and he will be your big brother and he will always be with you and he will always give you what you want. And one day, he will take you to heaven where you'll get even more stuff that you want. Now, boys and girls, who would like to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior? And the hands go up all around the room, right? And I feel like there needs to be a part two to the message while their hands are up. It says, now, I want to tell you, boys and girls, that now that your hands are up, I want to tell you that the most evil, vile, horrible creature ever created is watching you and he sees your hand is up and he hates your guts. And he's coming after you, boys and girls, and there's no escaping. And he's going to be with you and following you and chasing you down. And he's going to attack you. And you know what? When it's dark at night, he's going to be there, boys and girls. We don't tell him that, do we? Now, how many want to still accept Jesus as Lord and Savior? And their hands go down. See, both sides of that story have some truth. We need to understand that if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, Satan hates you. Hates you. I, I don't know if he actually hates you, Maybe he doesn't care about you at all, but I know this. He hates God. With every fiber of his being, he hates God. And, and having no power over God himself, what is he going to do with all of that hatred and all of that bitterness? He is going to attack that which God loves the most. And what does God love the most? Just like any other parent, his children. You want to get me? I'll, I'll withstand some difficulty. You know, you're going to have a fight on your hands if you're going to come after me. But... If you come after my children, man, I'll do anything. I'll, I'll do anything. You, you take my children, I'll pay any ransom. I'll, I'll do anything because that's where my heart is. And so if you were the enemy of God and you have no power to hurt God directly, what are you going to do? You're going to try to hurt him indirectly as much as you can. And that's exactly what's going on in the real world. Now you say, what do you mean in the real world? This is the real world. That's the spiritual realm. Oh, really? Is there difference? See, we think of the spiritual realm as sort of like fairy tale land. It's like never, never land, right? It's like something up in heaven, there's angels and people and whatever's going on up there. And that's so a whole different world. That's not us. That's not where we are. Guess what? You are not just a physical being. You are not just an emotional being. You are a spiritual being as well. You exist in the spiritual realm, and there is spiritual battle going on. And frankly, most of us as Christians are not prepared for it. We never talk about it. We're, we're, not, we're not trained for it. We don't really know what we're doing. Imagine you're 18 years old, you're fresh out of high school, you head off to the recruiting office for the United States Marine Corps. You sit down with a nice young man in a shiny uniform, and he looks so sharp, and he tells you about all of the great things. You know, there's a GI Bill. We're going to help you get through college. We're, we're going to 
you know, we're going to help you buy a house when you get out. All those student loans you're worried about, you're not going to have to worry about those like your friends, boy. You just go, you're going to see the world. And then you sign, and they send you to boot camp. And it's not like the recruiter's office. But imagine a boot camp where you get there, and they train you, man. They, they train you. They teach you how to march in perfectly straight lines and stand at attention. They, they, treat you how to sing, they teach you how to sing the Marine Corps fight song. They teach you how to make your bed in such a way you could bounce a quarter off the sheets. They teach you how to polish those boots and make them shine. They teach you how to wear that uniform and make it square off. They teach you all that stuff. But then they send you off to battle without ever having taught you how to fight. I feel like that's a lot of the church's story today in our culture. We, we, we sing the songs. We know how to dress. We know how to talk. We know how to do the whole Christian culture thing. We know how all that works, but, but we're not prepared for the battle. And so what's happening is this very real enemy, he knows he's in a battle. He's been planning and strategizing and preparing, and we have not. And we're just sitting there like sitting ducks, and he's coming after us. And Christians are falling by the wayside again and again and again, getting taken out of the game because they're being attacked by an enemy that they're not even realizing is after them. It would be crazy to teach somebody how to dress the part, but not how to fight. And yet, that's what I'm afraid so many of us have experienced. And so we get attacked, because it's inevitable that you're going to get attacked. And we pay the price, because we're not ready for the battle that we're fighting in. And today, we're going to see what we can do to set that right. This week and next week, we're going to be talking about what Paul has to tell us about actually being in this battle and being prepared for this battle so that we don't just somehow maybe survive, but that we actually thrive and we actually live the abundant life that Jesus called us to live. Now, if you turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, if you don't know where it is by now, you haven't been here before. But we're in Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to pick it up in verse 10. So turn to Ephesians 6.10, and follow along as I read. Finally, and we're going to stop there. Finally, some of you, we, we've been in the book of Ephesians now, I went back and looked, for eight months, and some of you are thinking, finally, <laughs> we are in chapter 6, finally, we're going to hear about something else, but it's interesting because because we've been looking at this book and we've been tearing it apart and checking it from every angle and trying to understand what is God saying to us? How is this supposed to change our lives? And we looked at those passages in chapters 1, 2, and 3 where it talks about the grace of God, the love of God, to be adopted and called his son or his daughter, to, made a, to be made a part of the family of God, to have an inheritance with all the saints, to have all that has been promised to us already in Christ, to to have experienced his grace, to have a calling upon our lives, to be gifted and be a part of the body of Christ, to use those gifts for his glory. And we looked at all of that kind of stuff, adoption and freedom and deliverance and grace and life. We looked at verses, chapters 4 and 5. It basically said this grace that is so amazing is also life-changing. It is going to change everything, how you walk, 
what you do, your relationships, the way you spend your time. It's going to radically alter your belief system, and that's going to radically alter your behavior. It's going to affect your views about life. It's going to affect your views about money. It's going to affect your views about sexuality and marriage. It's going to change the way you view your past and the way you look toward your future. It's going to affect the way you deal with your spouse. It's going to affect the way you deal with your children, the way you deal with your parents. It's going to affect the way that you deal with your employers. It's going to affect the way you deal with employees. It's going to affect everything, this grace of God. It's not just a ticket to heaven. It's life change. And we've seen this now for five chapters. Everything is new. Nothing is going to be the same. You're going to experience abundant life. And now he says, finally, I just have one more thing to talk to you about, he says. But listen, because it's important. I want to give you my last words, and I want them to hit home. And so finally, after all that, he tells us that all of this takes place in the midst of an ongoing battle. All of this grace is poured out in your life in the midst of a battle. All of this uh, different living happens in the midst of a battle. It's an ongoing battle, and it's going to keep you hopping from now until the day you get to heaven. You have an enemy. Christian, a powerful enemy. You're hated. And it's not just Paul who tells us this, but wherever you read in the New Testament, you're going to find this theme again and again. Let's just look at three different places. Go to the book of 1 John. It's in the back of your Bible. Just, you know, if you get to Revelation, you went too far, go left from there. But in 1 John chapter 5, I want you to see this. This is John writing now. And look what he says. We're going to pick it up in verse 18. We'll pick it up in verse 19. I'm sorry. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I'm not sure that most Christians even realize that. We are of God as followers of Christ. We've been adopted. We have been made children of the king with the inheritance and all that comes with it. We have a new kingdom, and yet we live in a world that is under the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And you go, wait a second. I've always been taught that God has all power. God is the one that's sovereign. There's no one else who has all power. That's right. Satan is not sovereign. Satan does not have all power, and yet he has the power that God has granted to him. And the scripture tells us that for a time, God has granted him dominion in this world. So what that means is not only are you in a battle if you're a follower of Jesus, but you are behind enemy lines. You live every day behind enemy lines. And we've, we've all, if you haven't ever fought in the war or been in the military, you've seen movies or read books or whatever, there's been a recent flurry of books and movies that have come out about people behind enemy lines in Afghanistan and the Middle East in those wars, these Navy SEALs that get dropped in behind enemy lines, and, and what do they do? Do they just walk up into a community and go, hey, we're American soldiers, here we are? No, everything is stealthy. Everything is, is careful. They don't take a step without first knowing where they're going and who's around and all of that kind of stuff. And if they do, they're going to be in huge trouble. They're awake at all times, alert at all times. There is never a time when nobody is on guard. If you're going to live behind enemy lines, 
You're going to live differently than you are if you're going to be on vacation on the beach. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5. Just go two books back to the left. 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to pick it up in verse 8. 1 Peter 5, 8. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Be sober. Be careful. Be alert. Be diligent. That's what he's saying. And if you're, if you're going to be behind enemy lines, you're going to have to be alert. And the reason is, the enemy is there. Now, you've probably been to the zoo, and you've probably seen lions, right? They're impressive. He didn't, he didn't write, you know, uh, be alert because your enemy is like a house cat who is going to jump on you while you're sleeping. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, you know, be alert because your enemy is like a coyote howling in the night. No, nobody's afraid of that. Be alert because your enemy is like a roaring lion seeking to devour prey. Now, there's a picture. If you've been to the zoo, you know that the lions are impressive and strong and they have huge teeth and claws and and there they are behind cages, and you sit still at a distance going, I, I wonder if they can get through these bars. One of my trips to Africa, I had the privilege of being able to spend a day in the game reserve, and, and uh, we, we saw hippos swimming right up next to our boat. That doesn't sound so scary, but it was. Crocodiles, you know, rhinos, giraffes, the whole deal. And then we, we came over this little rise and came around on, in our vehicle, and there in the distance, we saw it for the first time, lions. You know what? They look different when there's no cage. <laughs> I mean, really different. They're off in the distance. They're, they're, they're doing that walk that cats do, and I'm wondering, are, are we going to get to see a lion go after prey? So we, we stopped our vehicle. We all got out of the car with our cameras, and we, we began to stand on the side of the road and take pictures, and that's when the big male lion looked at us and began to move swiftly in our direction, <laughs> and I'm telling you, you have never seen five giant men get into a small car in less time than we did on that day. Because those lions were ferocious. They got close to us and we went, oh man, what were we doing outside the car? He says, your adversary, your enemy, like a roaring lion, he is seeking to devour you. He's not messing around. Now go back to the left a little more, you get to 2 Timothy just a little bit after Ephesians. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And some of you will remember that when, when he's writing to Timothy here, Paul is writing to Timothy, Timothy is the pastor of a church in a city called, anybody know? Ephesus. This is the people that he's writing to in Ephesians. Timothy is their pastor. 
And so the very same people that he speaks to about putting on the whole armor of God and standing firm against the schemes of the devil, their pastor needs encouragement as well. And so he writes to Timothy in chapter 2. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, um, verse 3, here's what he says. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of a daily life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. What he's saying is if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you've got to start thinking of yourself as a soldier. You can't entangle yourself in other commitments that supersede your commitment to God because you are a soldier first. And you better be a soldier first because the enemy is still attacking whether you think of yourself as a soldier or not. If you're a child of God, you're on a battlefield. And you're living your life there every day. It's a battle, and it's a raging battle, and it's, the battle is for your mind. The, the battle, my friends, is for your families. The battle is for your peace and your joy and your sense of hope. The battle is for your freedom because Satan wants us locked up in cages and controlled and, and missing out on the abundant life that Jesus died to give us. He wants to take away your dignity. He wants to take away your hope. He wants to take away your sense of purpose. He wants to take away your sense of self. And if you don't know that you're in a battle, then you are a sitting duck. And you will get picked off. That's why Paul tells us what he does in Ephesians chapter 6. Let's get back there. Ephesians chapter 6. Let's read the rest of verse 10. Finally, he says... Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Some of us realize that we have an enemy, but we have totally messed up on who our enemy is. So let me just clarify. Your ex is not your enemy. Okay? Your, your boss at work, who seems to have no other purpose in life but to make you miserable, is not your enemy. Neither is that coworker who sits next to you in the cubicle and all gossips about you in the break room. Your spouse is not your enemy. That professor at school who you can't seem to pass a test for and he seems to be out to get you, he's not your enemy. Your family members are not your enemy. Your siblings that you can't get along with, not your enemies. They are not your enemies. They are the captives of your enemy. It's so important for us to understand. They are the captives of your enemy. Some of us, and this is heartbreaking, some of us have been fighting battles with people for so long that we forgot why we got mad at them in the first place. Some of us know full well why we're still mad at them because we're still bearing the pain of the abuse that took place in our lives by somebody who mistreated us and hurt us. 
Some of us are mad at people who've been gone for years and, and, and they're never going to come back and they're never going to say, I'm sorry. Or it's never going to feel better. But we insist on the right to stay mad because they hurt us. And the enemy just sits back laughing. And he says, look at them in their little cages. Aren't they cute? And we're held captive because of the bitterness that is inside of us. Because we have made other people our enemies. Guys, we're all captives. And they're enemies. They're, they're captives of your enemy. They are not enemies. The people who have done you wrong are not your enemy. Jesus came to release us from the power of our true enemy. And that's Satan himself. And, and while we're talking about Satan and we can't get around it, it's all over the passage. Let's talk about Satan a little bit. Because, because I think a lot of us, even when we do realize Satan is the enemy, our view of Satan is so messed up, we have no idea what our enemy's like or who he is or what we can expect from him. You know, it is uh, Halloween season, and next week, you're going to see, or whenever it is, in a few days, you're going to see a whole bunch of kids dressed like this. Isn't that cute? A child dressed as Satan. So I'm going to go ahead and offend whoever I need to offend today and say this. If you already bought your child a little Satan outfit for Halloween, take it back. Because this idea that the world seems to have that Satan is a cartoon character, that Satan is a, is a figment of our imagination, just a, a boogeyman, someone that we give a name to so that we have someone to be afraid of. That Satan is just a, a little guy with a pitchfork who sits on this shoulder and tries to tell you to do bad things while an angel sits on this shoulder and tells you to do good things. We have this idea about Satan like he's some harmless little imp that has a pitchfork and a pointy tail and some horns. Listen, guys, that is not Satan. Satan is described for us in Scripture. Do you know that he is the most powerful, the most awe-inspiring, the most incredible being that God has ever created. He's the chief of the archangels of heaven. And he was made for one purpose, to bring glory to God. The Bible describes him as being covered in precious stones. That, that you can just imagine that a being whose, whose whole body is just made up of beautiful sparkling stones. And he gives us this image of him. He's a spiritual being, obviously, but it's an image that it gives us. Imagine what a being like that does in the presence of God, who is the light of the world. Just shines and casts forth the Lord's light when he's in the presence of God. Created to more powerfully than any other being bring glory to God in a way that no one else can. So impressive, so powerful, so awe-inspiring is this Lucifer, this archangel who was created by God for God's own purposes, that he begins to think that he is equal with God and in fact challenges God for authority in heaven only to be cast out with a third of the angels who followed him and to be forevermore the enemy of God. We are not talking about a cartoon character. We're talking about a powerful being who is serious about spiritual battle. Look at verse 12. 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And you say, well, at least they're in the spiritual realm. No, this is the spiritual realm. We are dealing with this every moment of every day. And, and this cute little imp that we picture in our minds, the real Satan, we're told in John 10.10 10, comes for one reason, to steal, kill, and destroy. And he's good at it. And he is cunning. And he is deceptive. And he is sneaky. How can you tell when Satan is at work somewhere? I mean, it's obvious. You walk into a room and, and people's heads are spinning around and their tongues are hanging out. And there's little babies crawling on the ceiling like this. You know Satan's at work, right? No, that's a bad movie that you saw. And it's going to give you nightmares. And you're going to call me and be like, Pastor, I'm under spiritual attack. And I'm going to go, stop going to the movies and hang up on you. <laughs> See, you want to know how you can tell when Satan's at work? He's been describing this for us. He appears to be an angel of light. He comes and encourages us not to trust God and instead to choose to trust ourselves to be our own gods. He tries to convince us to compromise our convictions and that that would be a good thing. He tempts us to walk away from God and see how the other half lives. And when we bite on that bait, then he tells us, you're such a loser, you better stay away from God's people because they're just going to judge you and look down on you. And he continues to just wrap us up in a tight little ball. He tries to convince us that we will never really find joy and satisfaction in God and his plan for our lives. So we better go find it in another way quick. This, this little imp with the cute little pitchfork and the pointy tail, the scripture says he is a liar. He is a tempter. He is a deceiver. He is a thief. He is a destroyer. That's who we're talking about. This is serious, you guys. And he knows how much God loves me. And therefore, I'm in the center of the crosshairs of his scope. You want to know where Satan's at work? I'll tell you where he's at work. Where there are people who would rather be drunk with wine than be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. That's where Satan's at work. Where, where there are people who become selfish in their own family relationships so that they see their spouse or their children or their parents as those who should serve me rather than me serving them and laying down my life for them and loving them. That's where Satan's at work. Where you have Christians who are in the workplace and you can't tell the difference between the Christians and the non-Christians at work, that's where Satan's at work. Where there are people who have decided that nature is the highest thing in all of the world, in all of the universe, that nature is God, and that there is no creator, and that we ought to make it a part of our public policy to teach our children that there is no God and that the universe created itself. That is where Satan is at work. And we live in it. We swim in it every single day. No scary music, no shadowy figures at the window, no creaking floorboards, none of that. Just a very real enemy, 
a stealthy enemy, a tricky, tempting, deceiving enemy doing what he has always done to try to get God's people out of God's will so that he can break God's heart. That is who our enemy is. So given who our enemy is, and given what our enemy is trying to do to us, what are we supposed to do? Well, look at verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm. Highlight those two words, stand firm against the schemes of the devil. If you skip down to verse 13, it says the same thing. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. He says you're supposed to stand firm against the onslaught of an attack from the enemy. An enemy like that, the one I just described, the one who God created and gave so much power to and has now turned against God and is attacking everything that God loves. You are supposed to stand firm and resist the attacks of an enemy like that. Now, I don't know what it's like for you when you walk past the mirror, but when I look past the mirror, I don't see a tough guy looking back. And I go, how am I supposed to stand firm against this angelic being who is so powerful? What in the world am I going to do? I'm dead. I can't resist him. I can't stand firm against him. How am I supposed to do that? I don't think Satan gets all nervous and wants to run for the hills when he sees the likes of you or me and says, I'm going to have to fight that one. I'm pretty sure that he's about as terrified as you and I as a deer hunter is terrified of a deer. So what are we supposed to do? If that's our enemy, why should such a being of such great power and evil and deception and strength be afraid of little old you or little old me? Thankfully, the scripture gives us an answer. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 says this, Greater is he that is within you than he who is in the world. Obviously, Dave is the only one who heard me. Greater is he who is within you than he who is in the world. Amen. That's what the Bible tells us. So it doesn't matter how weak you are. It doesn't matter how young you are in your faith. It doesn't matter how strong you are, how impressive you are, or how much you can quote the Bible in Greek and Hebrew. You know what matters? The one who's within you. Greater is he who is within you than he who is in the world. And he's going to tell us how he is going to fight our battles for us. And he's going to tell us what it looks like to actually stand firm in Christ, our solid rock, and let Christ be the one who wins our battles for us. Greater is he that is within you than he that is in the world. So we have a terrible enemy. Make no mistake, but we have an even greater king. And he has not left us alone. We are not sitting ducks just waiting to get picked off by this terrible enemy of ours. He's given us his spirit. That's why it says in Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. All of the stuff that follows that de demands that we be filled with the spirit. You can't put on the whole armor of God if you're not filled with the Spirit. You're never going to stand firm against the schemes of the devil if you're not filled with the Spirit. I mean, think about this. You're, you're a seven-year-old kid, and every day you walk to school, and every day this 10-year-old bully comes out from behind the bush and shakes you down for your lunch money. And every day you get pushed down, and every day you get kicked, and every day you go without lunch. 
and you dread going to school until the day comes when your seventh grade brother says, I'll go with you. This is a whole other deal. I can't, you know, you're walking to school and your chest is out and you're saying, I hope that punk shows up today. He's going to get some of his. He's going to find out a taste of his own medicine, right? Why? Because your big brother can wipe out that little punk. Guys, greater is he that is within you than he who is in the world. We need to understand just who our enemy is, and we need to respect what God has given him in terms of power, and we need to understand his strategy and how he works and what he's all about, but we do not need to be afraid because greater is he who is within us than he who is in the world. He has not left us alone. We are not going to get picked off one by one. He's given us instructions for abundant living, and some of those instructions are right here in the following verses in chapter 6, which we're going to get into next week. He's given us an awesome set of armor, it tells us. And he calls us to walk in that armor, and in that armor to stand firm against the schemes of the evil one. More about that next week. But for now, let me leave you with this, in case you didn't hear it before. Greater is he that is within you than he who is in the world. Let's stand and pray together.